you noticed one of the things that happens a lot when we gather together as a church? It'll happen a huge amount this weekend. I don't particularly mean drinking coffee, although that does tend to happen quite a lot in churches. The thing that happens a lot is this. We give advice to each other. You know, that. It'll often be accompanied by coffee, actually. But, you know, we'll talk about how the week has gone. We'll talk about different situations we're in. And we'll talk about our family problems. We'll talk about what's happening at work and so on. And we'll start giving advice to each other. Here's the question. Do you reckon the advice we give to each other is distinctively Christian or not? I was in a situation yesterday, a group of Christians together, and uh, funnily enough, I'd been in a situation where something hadn't been brilliant, and the advice I got was, you really need to complain about that. I remember just sitting there thinking, I reckon I'd get the same advice if I tried this on a radio phone-in. I wonder whether the advice we're giving each other is distinctively Christian or not. You should complain. Stand up for yourself. I wonder in the, in the advice we give to each other about the different situations in life, we ever say this, I think the main priority is you are as Christ-like as possible in this situation. I wonder if that's just advice we ever give to each other. We're going to need wisdom this morning because we're going to think about how we behave when life is tough, how we behave when we're mistreated, how we behave when we suffer. What does it mean to live like Jesus? What does it mean to be courageous, Christ-like communities in that context? Because to be a Christian will often be to be on the receiving end of hardship and injustice. Because, let's be honest, we follow Jesus. There's an old hymn that has always uh, struck me, actually. Um, and it uh, basically works through the cross. It works the way through all the, uh, the events of Jesus' life that happens uh, on the, uh, the cross. And um, says he who's not, yeah, this isn't working, actually. Um, and it works through the, uh, the details of uh, Jesus' life. And his death on the cross. And you get this verse. Why? What has my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. And it's just a verse from a hymn that kind of brings out just the sheer injustice of the cross. There's Jesus being mocked and flogged and humiliated and hung up to die. What had he done? He'd just gone around teaching people and healing people and being kind to them. I mean, the cross is the ultimate injustice. What had he done? Just done good. And there he is being hung up in agony. And of course, that becomes the pattern for Christians down through the century. Peter puts it like this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So Peter, do you remember there he was, I mean, trying to run away, to be honest, but, you know, he was aware of what was going on as Jesus was led to the cross. And having seen it, he says, that becomes the pattern. 
for all of us. Of course, it was the pattern for Peter himself. Peter's life, we gather, ended through death on a cross. And then you work your way through the early centuries of the church. In 203 in Carthage, there were two women. Felicitas was a slave girl. Perpetua was actually her mistress. Felicitas had become a Christian and then led the person who owned her to Christ. And hand in hand, they walked into the arena to face their death. In Oxford, where I live, about a mile from where I live, there's a street in Oxford. If you walk along the street, you look down and there's uh, stones that are formed in the shape of a cross. Because that was where Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley were burnt at the stake and put to death. Or you go to North Korea today, brothers and sisters in prison, nobody really knows about them. Perhaps because they were found owning a Bible. And Peter says that's the pattern. That's the pattern if we want to follow Jesus. If we're going to be a courageous, Christ-like community, it will involve suffering and it will involve injustice. We've seen two passages so far haven't we where we're called in the bible explicitly to be like jesus jesus says i'm off to the cross follow me your road is going to be the same and this morning we saw jesus as the supreme example of love jesus christ laid down his life for us and again we're said and you ought to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters and here in 1 peter 2 we get christ suffered for you leaving you an example now again, throughout the weekend, and we'll see it later in the passage actually, we've been saying Jesus is more than an example for us. He's a saviour. He does what we can't do, but he is an example for us. We are called to walk in his steps, made possible because he lives within us. And I want to hang around for the next 20 minutes or so, just in one Peter, rather like we hung around in one John, to just run through this theme of what does it look like to suffer like Jesus and so be made like him and the first thing I want to pick up is just the expectations we should have the expectations we should have in 1 Peter 4 verse 12 actually not on the uh, the screen Peter says this dear friends don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you Almost certainly Peter's readers were at the early stages of persecution, the early stages of opposition. And Peter was saying, that's the kind of thing you should expect. Difference, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised thinking, hey, we're Christians, everybody should think we're wonderful. Don't be surprised when you begin to face opposition. Or or 1 Peter 2 verse 12, Peter says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or in 1 Peter 4, Peter tells Christians to live in a distinctive way, not doing what other people do. And and he says, they'll be surprised. You know, the non-Christians around you, they'll be surprised at the way you live. They'll think you, frankly, a little bit weird. 
And so throughout 1 Peter, Peter is just dropping in, here are the expectations you should have. Don't be surprised when people oppose you. Don't be surprised when people think you're weird. Don't be surprised when people accuse you of doing wrong. Now, I've sort of noted examples of that down through church history and around the world. I think it's worth reflecting where we are culturally. I think there's been a shift from generation to generation. People often say, as they look back to, I don't know, say the 1950s, largely to be a Christian was seen to be a positive thing. You know, not everybody went to church, but people regarded going to a church as the kind of thing morally respectable people did. Then you move forward 40 years to the sort of period when I was growing up. And I think my memory of being a Christian was something like this when I was sort of away studying, was basically people thought it was a little bit strange, but hey, if you want to do that, that's great. We do other stuff. You go to church, that's fine. Probably as you wind that on 40 years, I suspect we're beginning to get to the stage where it's not just okay for you. Actually, it's a little bit suspicious. And we begin to be accused of doing wrong. I uh, used to be a church leader, used to be a pastor. Can I just get my northern roots That I was a pastor. All my southern friends call me a pastor. I was a pastor of a church in Oxford. Uh, And then finished that last year. And I'll do two jobs. I spend three days a week uh, leading a ministry training course that helps interns and so on to get to grips with the Bible. Spend two days a week working with a group called Living Out. Living out a group of church leaders who experience attraction to people of the same sex but believe that Jesus' teaching is that marriage should be for a man and a woman because the ultimate wedding is between Jesus and the church, between people who are different. And so that means that I spend two days a week basically talking to random strangers about sexuality, which is an interesting way to earn a living. But one of the things I end up saying quite a lot to people is this look if you hold to what Jesus teaches on this subject you will be accused of doing wrong you know, often I'm accused of teaching stuff that's harmful and dangerous even though I'm really clear the teaching of Jesus is never ever designed to cause people to hate themselves or anything like that but nevertheless those accusations come along every so often And particularly I'm conscious, actually, that it's teenagers who often end up on the front line of that, actually. You know, Christian teenagers who are wanting to hold on to the truth of the Bible at school and so on are often on the receiving end of the most difficult questions. And what I end up saying quite a lot to young people is this, look, I need to be honest with you. If you keep going as a Christian, you will be accused of doing wrong. And you will be regarded as weird. And you will be regarded as strange. And that's normal. That's actually what the Bible says is the case for those who are Christians. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. And actually as we live in our communities, that should be part of what we expect to happen. And I suspect increasingly the case now, often we find that difficult because, let's be honest, most of us want to be liked. Actually, particularly those who are sensitive people. You know, there are sort of vaguely insensitive people. I don't really care what people think of me. And people like that tend to have other issues. But lots of us, we just want people to like us. 
we want people to regard us as good people. And holding views that are countercultural can feel difficult for us. But actually, we need to be clear the goal isn't to be liked. I sat with a group of church leaders last week and essentially they're saying we, we just need to change our theology on this because we want to witness our, to our neighbours and we can't hold to something that they think is wrong. Now, I wasn't rude enough to say, good grief, that's a really good example of being an uncourageous Christian community. But rather to say, look, holding to stuff that people think is wrong is normal Christianity. Facing opposition is normal Christianity. But here's the other way we can go wrong in that. So actually Christians can go wrong by running from suffering and opposition by basically saying our goal is to be the same as everybody else and think the same as everybody else. But Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says this, as you are accused of doing wrong, the goal is not to get angry about that. How dare people accuse us of being wrong? Don't they realise they're ignoring God? How outrageous it is. Now Peter says, as you're accused of doing wrong, go back into that community. Go back to the people who are accusing you of doing wrong and live good lives. Go back and do good. Go and live loving the people who aren't living God's way, love them extravagantly, show interest in their lives, be concerned about their good, offer them practical help. You know, it's lovely actually again just to hear about what different churches are doing, engaging with the community, whether for women who face trauma or to help people through addiction. Go back into a community that is accusing you of doing wrong and do good. Here's a great mission statement for a church. Our goal is to baffle people. Our goal is to baffle people. Let me put it like this. The conversations I would love to hear go something like this. Gosh, I think your ideas about morality, they're so old-fashioned. And they're a bit prejudiced. And I don't really like them. And yet you're so kind and you're so interested in me. You're so loving and you're so compassionate. How does that work? I'm baffled. Does that make sense? Our goal is to leave a great big question mark running behind us. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and come to glorify God on the day he visits us. Do good even when people think you're doing wrong. Peter says that's how you're to live in a culture that is moving away from Christian values. Don't get angry. Don't write lots of petitions. Do good. Do good. Because remember we started with the question, what does the 21st century need the church to look like? Well, if the 21st century is beginning to look more and more like the 1st century in its approach to Christianity then Peter's advice becomes really important. Do good, even when people accuse you of doing wrong. Don't be discouraged when people accuse you of doing wrong. That's just normal. That's what we should expect. Don't think the plan is misfiring. That's normal. Because we follow Jesus. 
but do good. And then we see the example we should follow. Because who is best at doing this? Who is best at being godly in the midst of opposition? Hey, no surprise, it is the Sunday school question. Yes, the answer is Jesus. Because that's how Peter develops in this passage. He talks about our attitude towards governments and authorities and by and large says the right response is to submit to them, to show respect to them. And then in verse 18 onwards, he turns to slaves, those who had very few rights. And for some of them, their experience of slavery was of hardship. But Peter says, as you suffer, even if at times you suffer and you are doing good, Jesus is your example. Because, of course, Jesus is the supreme example of somebody who was punished for doing good. What do you think for a moment about the road to the cross? Crown of thorns being pushed on his brow. The beating and the flogging. The mockery of the soldiers. Earlier the crowd shouting crucify, crucify him. It must have been the case that every part of Jesus was saying I don't deserve this. This is unfair. This is unjust. What have I done to deserve this? He committed no sin. And no deceit was in his mouth. But see how he responds, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. It's remarkable, isn't it? Just his willingness not to shout, not to cry out, not to complain. But willingly to go to the cross and endure that injustice. And he does it because of the audience he's got in mind. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But Jesus' priority is he goes to the cross is not, I want my rights, I want justice. Rather, his main goal is, I want to please God. I'm entrusting myself to the one who will put all things right. He knows, he knows I'm innocent, and that's enough for me. It's enough for me that I'm doing what is right in God's eyes. I don't need to get vindication from this crowd. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. Now, I think this is hugely important and massively countercultural, the call to live like Jesus in this sort of context. The, the church that I pastored was, it was ju I just had a wonderful time there. They were a brilliant church to pastor. During the last two or three years, we, we just had one particularly difficult situation that... <laughs> It involved so three people quite involved in the leadership in the church. And to be honest, it was really painful. And to be honest, basically wiped out useful ministry for a year because we spent all our time trying to deal with it. 
And it's one of those complex situations where you could see there was right on both sides and it, it wasn't easy to say, you know, this person's clearly in the right, that person's clearly in the wrong. It, it was complex. And in many ways they tried to handle it well. But occasionally as I look back, and I didn't handle it brilliantly, but occasionally I look back and the thing I wished I'd said to them was, look, I know you think you're in the right, but would you be willing to accept being wronged and following the path of Jesus? That's what I wish I'd said, actually. But you may well be in the right, and you may well come on the wrong side of this, and it may be unfair, but could you possibly follow the example of Jesus here? And be willing to accept being wronged because we follow somebody who went to the cross and experienced the hideous injustice. Do you see, it's just the opposite of defensiveness. It's the opposite of I need my rights. It's the opposite of I must be vindicated here and now. And if we're innocent, we will be vindicated ultimately because he sees. Boy, is it different. Why is it different from our natural instinct? Stand up for my rights. Now, can I say we need wisdom here? This is tricky. Let me give you another situation. So, again, church that I know quite well, meeting a school, just got kicked out of the school because, hey, the school says, I'm not sure we believe the same sort of stuff as you. And the church realised technically that was unlawful. Actually, you're not supposed to discriminate against groups on religious grounds. It was technically unlawful. So the church was in, what do we do about this? Actually, as it happens, this school trust has lots of churches using their property. And so actually the church said, actually, for the sake of the other churches, we probably do need just very gently to say, look, you do realise what you're doing is unlawful. And actually the school trust backed down as a result. And you might say, well, that's very different to Jesus, isn't it? We do need wisdom here. There's a moment actually in Philippi where Paul has just been flogged and just gently makes the point, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. You really shouldn't have done that. And is actually escorted out sort of very politely. But there are times, it seems to me, when in a very gentle way, not in a really angry way, but in a gentle way, it's right just to point those things out. You know, some of us will have bosses at work who've just got unrealistic expectations. And that is beginning to damage family life and stuff like that. Again, I don't think it's wrong gently just to say, look, you're expecting me to do way more than I'm supposed to be doing. Or, or again, there will be situations where perhaps we've been on the receiving end of just hideous abuse. And we know that if we don't say anything, the result will be that being done to others as well. And actually, for their sake, as much as anything else, we do have to say something. You know, can I say there are times when wisdom is needed here. So please don't hear me say in every injustice, the right thing to do is to say nothing. We do need wisdom here. But what I'm nervous about is that not being about wanting rights for others, not being about caring for others but it's just I've been mistreated I must get my rights and the anger goes up and the self-righteousness goes up and that is a problem actually because that isn't distinctive in the end that's actually just like everybody else and Christ suffered for us giving us an example that we should follow
Because boy, when a church lives like this, it ends up being distinct. Let me tell you the story of Justin. Uh, Justin was a, uh, uh, somebody who kicked around in the second century, and he was a traveling philosopher. You could earn money by being a traveling philosopher in the, uh, the second century, and he was into sort of Plato and stuff like that and would sort of pass it on. Uh, as he was traveling around, he was struck by the example of Christians, particularly the way he saw Christians being led off to be martyred. He said this, I myself, when I was delighting the doctrines of Platon and heard the Christians slandered and yet saw them fearless of death, perceived that it was impossible that they could be living in wickedness and pleasure. You know, that was the accusation at the time. These Christians are awful people. They need to be put to death. And Justin saw the way in which they were led to their death and said, no, there's something else going on here. That actually led to him looking into the Christian faith. As he did, what he was struck by most of all was the way in which you get these Old Testament passages that point so clearly to Jesus even before he came. And Justin becomes a Christian. And he writes a letter to the emperor, or book effectively, essentially arguing why Christians shouldn't be persecuted. This extract comes from that. He wasn't overly successful. He's passed into church history as Justin Martyr because he ended up following the example of those who first inspired him to look into Christianity. But here you see an example of seeing Christians live this sort of stuff out. Became the thing, what's going on here? And if you like, the call here is to have the courage to be willing to suffer, even to suffer injustice. It's the willingness to pay cost again because we follow one who has been crucified. Not always to be complaining, not always to be standing up for our rights, but in our place of work and in our neighborhoods for people to say there is something different about you because sometimes rubbish stuff happens to you and you're not making a big song and a dance about it. Why? Well, because I follow the person who faced the worst injustice in the world. That's why. Because what Peter wants us to know is just that that injustice ends up being glorious. He himself bore his body, our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the thing. Suffering like Jesus is never meaningless. And the cross shows us that. You know, as Jesus went to the cross, as he didn't shout out as people were mocking him, as he embraced this ultimate injustice, what was he doing? Bringing people like us back to God forever. And it's the glory of the cross. The fact that each of us now, if we're trusting Jesus, has got a shepherd and carer for our souls. That we're not estranged from, that we're not abandoned from, but that we know. And we know he loves us. Why? Because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. And it's the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. His willingness to embrace the worst injustice changes our eternities. And the call for us as Christians is this. 
We want to glory in the cross. We want to sing as we've done of all that Jesus has done for us on the cross and all the difference it's made to our lives. And then we want to say, and I want to live that way. I want to follow that way. Can you ask how I put this series together? I just put this series together. I think it'd be really interesting just to sort of look at all the passages where Jesus is seen as an example for us. What I didn't realize until I started preparing them was all the New Testament passages where Jesus is an example for us take us to the cross. All of them. So Philippians chapter 2. May you have the same attitude as Jesus Christ who was obedient even to death, death on a cross. 1 John as we've seen. Love each other. How? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 Peter 2. Suffer like Jesus. How? When he went to the cross he didn't lift up his voice all about the cross can I change our title again our goal is to be courageous Christ-like cross-shaped communities that actually as we live our life as a community together the thing that marks us is we glory in what Jesus won for us on the cross and we say we want to live as cross-shaped Christians and so as we give advice to one another as we give advice to one another about our families and our neighbours and how we live life, the thing we're asking is, what difference does the cross make to this? How do I respond to this situation in a way that looks like Jesus dying on the cross? Wouldn't it be great if we just trained each other to give that sort of advice? What does this look like from the perspective of the cross? Around the time of the Reformation, when the, the church had been in darkness for a, num a long period of uh, centuries in many ways. And Martin Luther came and he discovered the way in which we were made right with God because of Jesus' work on the cross. And he, he ended up saying basically there are two ways you can do life. You can do a theology of glory, which is basically, it's about popularity, it's about comfort, it's about everything being wonderful and triumphant and successful. Or you can basically do the theology of the cross, which means your Christian life will often be marked by suffering and unpopularity and opposition and not standing up for your rights and not looking successful and wonderful in the world's eyes. But he says that's the way God works. God works through the cross. And so will you forgive me? I think the goal for your five churches isn't that everybody around is saying, gosh, aren't you amazing? You're never going to appear on the BBC News as the most important thing happening in Merseyside. People often won't say, you believe stuff that is really healthy. And yet as you suffer, and as you love, and as you serve, God will be at work. Because that's how he works.